Hey you, welcome to Tea Talk, a space to share the therapy tea. I'm Shailene, your host, and I hope you'll join me each week as we sit down to share tips, stories, and conversations on getting better emotionally, recovering from trauma, and improving your overall quality of life. I want to remind everyone that even though podcasts can feel therapeutic, they are definitely not a replacement for therapy. Please, at any point, if you feel the need to take a break because the content is too heavy, please do that and take care of yourself. Also, if you're loving this podcast, please do me a favor and leave me a review, share your reflections with me on Instagram and share it with a friend who needs to hear it. All right. So I'm ready. You're ready. And we're friends now. So go ahead and sit down cozy up and let's get ready for today's episode. Hey everybody. I am here with my friend, Jamie, Jamie and I met at a conference. I feel like people probably roll their eyes like, Oh, another person you met in Nashville or Hawaii or whatever. I met a lot of really cool people. Jamie is one of them and Jamie is here today. So why don't you say hello and introduce yourself? Hello, everybody out there. I'm Jamie Roberts. I'm an LMFT in California and agreed. I feel like I made a ton of great connections in Nashville and at um, other conferences. It's just makes the therapy world smaller, which is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. But so I'm in California. I have a teen counseling center called Equilibrium Counseling Services, and we specialize with neurodivergent teens and young adults. So we work a lot with ADHD, autism, processing, learning disabilities, um, anxiety, depression, all of the things, but particularly with our teens going through major life transitions, becoming young adults, finding individuality and all of that. Yes. So tell us a little bit about, we haven't talked a ton about neurodivergence here on the pod, a little bit with Patrick Casal. He um, did an episode and we talked a little bit about that. But I feel like neurodivergence right now, it's a hot word in the therapy world and probably on TikTok for people. Like people are probably just starting to understand what this term is, but can you give us a refresher for anyone who may have not heard the term neurodivergence before? Yes. So neurodiversity is that all of our brains have diversity within the construction of the brain. So everyone has neurodiversity being neurodivergent means you are atypical from the norm. And that is an umbrella word that usually describes anything that has a brain processing piece. So ADHD, autism, um, uh, verbal or auditory processing disorders, learning disabilities, um, bipolar, OCD, it encompasses a lot, a big portion of the DSM. So it's different from a mood disorder in that it is how my brain processes the information and it is a part of me but is different from the norm, as opposed to a mood disorder, anxiety, having an impact on my ability to function or live or, or connect. Okay. Would PTSD be considered a neurodivergent? Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Because, um, trauma changes the brain. Yes. Sometimes we call it like an acquired neurodivergence. Hmm. Because this happened. And so like, I wasn't necessarily yeah, it kind of it okay. shifted the chemistry of my brain and I acquired that later or at a different point. And now my brain processes information differently because of that. Okay. So mm-hmm. you serve this population. This is, these are, these are your people, mm-hmm. um, in terms of the work that you do. But I know from following you on social media that you also is what's the word, like you are also neurodivergent. Do you say I identify mm-hmm. as, or like, this is a, I just am. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So can you share a little bit about your, like how you got to where you are in your own diagnosis? And cause I'm sure that was probably a journey. Like it is for most people. 
Yeah. So on social media, I'm neurodivergent therapist um, on everything, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, all of the places you can find me there. Um, I have like a two part story. One is like the linear about all of the things I was doing to mask and understand myself without knowing what neurodiversity was. And then there's the retrospective story about now that I know that I'm ADHD and autistic, how does that change my view of what I was doing all those years? So I think part of why I went into studying psychology is I wanted to understand people and I wanted to understand their brains because it didn't make sense to me. And I thought I was just curious about people. Now, looking back, I can see, oh, I was autistic and I was trying to study the neurotypicals to understand some of these functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, so from my, I was always working with teens um, because that's where I experienced the most of my struggles and difficulties in middle school and the high school years. And so part of the quote for my practice is to become the person I needed when I was younger. Mm. And part of that is bringing the information about neurodivergence to younger generations or bringing it, widening the understanding. And so I received my ADHD diagnosis at 31 because I was going through a huge cognitive decline. I had a major life transition happen and I was struggling to do some of the executive function that I had always been good at suddenly was falling through the cracks. So my brain fog had increased, was really, really struggling and came across the, it came across ADHD, which was funny because I was at the time working, doing assessments for the time that mm-hmm. specialize in ADHD and autism. And I was like, oh, I just really get these clients. I'm super good at the job. <laughs> now I'm like, like oh. I can actually relate a thousand percent. <laughs> yes. And so yeah, now I'm like, oh, well, you know, it's because me too. Uh-huh. Um, and so then it kind of, I ran with the ADHD and then all of the kind of similarities that show up with autism and learned about my dyslexia and um, different ways my brain takes in information. And then I think this goes along with the boom in the conversation, especially showing up on TikTok is I believe that the pandemic really made this shift in the conversation for Mm -hmm. two parts. One, for autistic individuals, we got to have less stimulation. We could be home. We could be in a comfortable environment. We had control of our clothes, our hours, our, how many people we were around. And all of a sudden the mask could come off. And it felt different for the first time. A lot of those stresses were changed. A lot of resources were lost too, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for a lot of ADHD people, the external structures we are given that kind of keep us moving forward disappeared. So with ADHD, we need a lot of external accountability. And we didn't have to be at work at a certain time. We didn't have to show up for class. We just had to get the work done on our schedule. And we know that organization prioritization are really hard. And so at the same time, the whole world was going through this experience of losing what was the norm. And so we all went to the internet to connect. And all of a sudden, when we were all going through this transition at the same time, we were able to connect the dots. Whereas before this, one person at a time might be going through a huge change and just think I'm struggling, I'm crazy, I'm this. But because we were all going through it, we were able to collectively put together the characteristics in a way that aren't present in the DSM. And okay, become more so, so as an adult with a master's degree, like I do know some things, but I'm going to ask this question also as an adult diagnosed with ADHD, I'm going to ask this question because I feel mm-hmm. like you're an expert and you're not going to judge my question, but there's something about, so my formal ADHD diagnosis came like within the past couple of months. Mm-hmm. And before it was always like kind of a 
not like a joke because I don't mean to like minimize the impact of it, but like, it was kind of a joke, like, oh yeah, I probably have ADHD. And it's like, oh, it turns out you do. But I just, I'm thinking about like, I remember back in the day, ADHD diagnosis used to be like, um, was it, I don't know. And I don't know how it's written now in the DSM, but it was like, needs to be diagnosed before age 12. And if it wasn't, then, you know, you probably don't have it now. We can go into how problematic the DSM is because it's like a black and white. If you don't fit this, then that's it. And there's probably something wrong with you. So come see us another time. Like that's problematic mm-hmm. in itself. But I think about that a lot. Like, I'm like, was I always like this? And did it get worse during the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Did everyone? And, and now because of all of those things that you talked about, it also feels like everyone I know has ADHD. That's not true, but I do think I probably hang out with a lot of ADHD group practice mm-hmm. owners who have kind of like used that to their benefit in ways to create and move and, and like take risks on things that maybe other people wouldn't have. So in that regard, it's true, but it does feel like everyone's getting like diagnoses now that like, number one, previously you had to meet criteria earlier. So it's like, I had moments of like, do I really have this? And then I took some tests and was like, yes, I definitely do. So there's like that piece of it. And that feels like kind of inherently validating. Like it kind of messes with you of like, do I, cause then it's like the whole, the next conversation is like, well, what do I do now? Do I need to be on medication for this? What would my life look like if I were medical? Do I need to like specialized therapy for this? So there's that whole part of it. And then, um, there's also just the pandemic. Like what the heck, like what if the pandemic never happened, things would look a lot differently. It doesn't matter because it did, but I'm just like, I think the pandemic like made attention and like all of these things that you were listing it made that all harder and amplified. I think for like the regular everyday person who maybe didn't have ADHD. Right. I don't know. I don't even know that I'm asking a formal question. I'm just like having all of these thoughts and I'm like, but what about this? And what about this? I'm curious about your response to any of those things that I just said. (laughs) Um, Well, the big one that I think a lot of therapists are criticizing with a lot of the neurodiversity like gaining so much attention is the piece about like if it wasn't diagnosed before 12 if you don't have mm-hmm. the childhood history and my response to that is is it is very different if you are identified as female or at birth identified as female because less than 10 percent of research on adhd and autism is conducted on women mm. and so if we are not a part of the research we are not a part of the diagnostic criteria therefore we are not noticed before we are 12 hmm. Right. And there's a big difference between how um, females are our brains function differently. That's just mm-hmm. what it is. And how we're socialized is also different. So there are the symptoms that people are looking for when we think of autism or we think of ADHD, the stereotype of the boy bouncing around in his chair that can't sit still and can't stop talking. Mm-hmm. But there's a high percentage of women that have inattention, which we internalize that that hyperactivity my brain is bouncing around all over, but I can sit here and I can listen to you and I can stay focused. I not focused. I can stay looking focused. <laughs> sure. Yeah. My brain is going to go everywhere and I'm having all of these thoughts, but mm-hmm. you're not seeing it on the outside. And if mm-hmm. we're only relying on what others can observe, we're not taking in the person's experience. And that's one of the criticisms of a lot of like autism assessments is observer information is weighted very heavily. Mm-hmm. as opposed to what is my lived experience. Mm-hmm. And so if we can change some of the language about what these look like in girls at younger ages, I think we can see more of it. If we're looking at perfectionism or teacher's pet or being super studious or 
I didn't have a train collection, but my Barbie collection is real big. Mm-hmm. And so we're thinking of autism as trains, dinosaurs, science. Mm-hmm. That wasn't me. But if we look at my Barbies and my art and my storybooks, those are very like big hyperfixations. And mm-hmm. so we have to kind of change those contexts and different cultural considerations about who's being noticed, who's being identified, who has the resources or accessibility to be diagnosed in the 90s. Yeah. Like, like that's, that's so true. Too. And you know, it makes me want, it makes me want, I've never thought about this before until you said that about like being a girl, socialized perfectionism, all this other stuff. So it's like, I am a child of alcoholic parents. Um, so there's a lot of perfectionism and like parentified child stuff. Mm-hmm. It's called trauma, um, goes on through, through that. And then, um, my grandmother who was a big part in like a portion of my life and like raising me and stuff, she was a a teacher for like years and years and years. And so this is like instilled in me and it was what I did really great at. I did really great in school. I also remember these little things. Cause as you're saying that I'm thinking, okay, well, if that really was my experience, okay. Again, my mind right goes to invalidating my own experience. It's like, if that really was my experience and I was sitting there and I couldn't really pay attention, then how did I do so well in school? Mm-hmm. And then I think to myself, well, I wonder if everybody else was like the way that they studied for test was rewriting their entire textbook. Like, right. That's how I studied for test. Or I also remember, I remember walking to elementary school one day And I had so many books in my backpack that the whole freaking strap just broke. Like everything just went, and it was like, (laughs) why the hell was I carrying so many books? I was like nine years old. Like it was heavy. I remember having back pain from it. And I remember having to get those little rubber things on your pencil because I was getting like this huge bump on my hand from rewriting all the notes all the Mm -hmm. time. And so it was like, I did well, but I had to put a lot of work into that. And I guess, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess I just thought that's what, I thought that's what other people did too. Yeah. I mean, that's where we have to figure out like, what is that threshold of how it is the amount of work reflecting the outcome. So a lot of my clients will put in that amount of work, but they're sitting at the B, C, A minus range, but they're putting in hours. And so are you having to double work extra work? Is it, is the way you're taking in the information actually registering and storing in your brain? Because a lot of times we can be rewriting and rewriting, but is that storing it? And so mm-hmm. it's looking at, are the study skills we're teaching working for neurodivergent brains or neurodivergent plain brains trying to use the planner because we're supposed to use the planner, but yeah. a planner doesn't work for us. Mm-hmm. And so how do we figure out what these other methods are to fit our brain and not trying to force us ourselves in the box of what we're prescribed to do? Oh, the planner really got me. That was me right. too for a long, every, like, I loved the idea of the planner mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. writing everything and the color codes and the tabs and all that stuff, but it just didn't hit. Like it just yeah. wouldn't. And I'd have a lot of planners that were like half filled out. Yes. Okay. So here's my, here's my hack. Yes. I tell us the planner. I have three methods and I alternate them because as soon as the dopamine is gone, I stop using it. Right. So I have planners that have the days of the week, but no numbers. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'll probably use this planner for a year and a half because I won't use it every single week. Okay. And then if I don't use it for a week. I don't lose the planner because it doesn't There's really no matter. Dates. Yeah. Okay. So I have this one, I have a to-do list and I have my computer and I have like a monthly one on my wall because mm-hmm. there's a difference between being able to touch it for me and being able to see it. And so I might be double, triple working myself by keeping it in multiple places. Mm-hmm. 
But if I don't write it on the notepad, it's in the computer. Mm -hmm. And if it's not on the computer, it's on my wall calendar. Mm -hmm. And so I'm allowed in my brain, I've decided I can alternate those. Mm -hmm. So it might be two weeks that I use my notebook and then two weeks that I'm making a to-do list for everything. And then two weeks that my computer calendar is super up to date. And I've given my permission that that's okay. That Mm -hmm. I don't have to keep one the entire year. That's a hard place to get to in perfectionistic life when you're like, this is my system and it works for me. And I, I can just let go of the fact that I'm not going to be just a planner person or just a digital person or that my post-it notes are kind of all over the place, but like all of this makes sense to me and that's Mm -hmm. okay. There's some relief in that too, because it's like, oh, I can stop stressing about the fact that like, I haven't (laughs) gotten it right, which seems like so minuscule. But I think when your brain works in this way, where it's like, every open tab you want to look at and understand it all and fix it all and, and process it all before you move to the next thing. It's like, okay, that's not going to really serve you very well. So why don't you just back up and accept that we can close all of these. And then if it's really important, like lately, my system's been like, oh, that was a really good idea. You should write it down. I'm not going to write it down right now, but if it was good enough, it'll come back. And like, just trusting that it's going to come back or trust that I'll remember whatever that thing is. So That's, I feel like helpful for people to hear for sure. Let's go back to, you talked about your own process and growing up and coming through, coming through the, the process of like looking back and going, oh, I was masking a lot. Talk a little bit about what masking means and what that looked like for you in your life. As you started to look into this, I'm having a memory of you saying that you are, or were in your healing era. We're talking a lot Mm -hmm. about Taylor Swift stuff. So I'm like, I'm sure some of that was coming up of like, yeah. oh man, like poor little Jamie was yes. really going through a hard time. So talk a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah. So masking is um, really associated with autism in that the mask or the character or the persona we have to put on in order to not be detected in public or in with neurotypicals of I, it's the forced eye contact. It's the don't fidget. It's the make sure that I breathe every two minutes of putting on the human mask of this is how I am told I'm supposed to show up in this space. And so what are all the things I have to manipulate myself into to show up here? It's often associated with like code switching in that in a lot of environments, um, there's a safety component to it also, of right? In order to be received, I'm having to change a myself way. To fit mm-hmm. in this way. Mm-hmm. And I'm now just denying my authenticity because the environment is not safe for me to be my authentic self. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not on the person of hiding themselves that I have to mask. It's that the society, the community, the environment is not safe for me to show up as myself. So this is the, how I have to perform to be received in that space. And so there is a lot of times we're unknown that we're masking that we think this is like how you're with the notes. I just thought everybody did this. And so there can be a lot of times where people don't think they have some of these traits because they're like, well, doesn't everybody have to like count who's talked the most times in the circle? And when it's my turn to talk, that's just Mm -hmm. how conversations happen versus there being a natural flow. Mm -hmm. And so part of understanding some of the neurodivergence is being able to identify when you're masking, when you don't have to mask, when it is a performative mask, when it is a safety mask, when there are these different things. Um, I also like to say that hats are different than masks because I can wear different hats. I can be a boss. I can be a therapist. I can be a friend and I'm still Jamie and all of those, but I'm going to show up differently, right? When I'm supervising one of my employees, I'm going to show up differently than when I'm having a drink with a friend after work. Mm -hmm. It's still me. A mask kind of blocks me from being fully me. 
you might get parts of me, but you're not going to get all of me. There's some sort of barrier there. Mm -hmm. And so I think of those as different. Um, And I think a lot of what we're seeing from the pandemic is a mass unmasking. And and now things going back in person are trying to get back to before masks don't fit anymore. And so people are refusing to put them back on. Cool. Rightfully so. Mm-hmm. And it's having to switch our environments to be more accommodating to now I'm aware of my sensory needs because I've unmasked a knot and I've stopped, I've stopped suppressing what my needs are. And so now that I'm aware of my sensory needs, I know that as soon as this podcast is open, all my overhead lights are going back off. Mm-hmm. I've got good lighting now, but I'm not going to sit in this all day. <laughs> and so being able to pick and choose what those things look like. That's something that people can learn from in terms of mental health and well-being, regardless of whether mm-hmm. they are neurodivergent or not, like paying attention to what makes me feel good and trying to lean into that. Mm-hmm. more and and asking yourself more questions as to like why do I do it this way if it doesn't feel good and I just right. think that's like such an important thing to pay attention to and not to minimize the experience of anyone who's diagnosed with autism like it's like a whole different thing but I just mm-hmm. think like whoever's listening to to really be paying attention to that in general like can you stop and not stop and slow down because even that's not easy but can you pause and just be curious around what makes me feel good down to the lighting or yeah, same with these headphones. Like I cannot wear these headphones for more than 45 minutes or I feel like my brain is like getting crushed, even right. though the message that I tell myself, I'm like, but they're beats like, and they're cute and they're rose gold and they're noise yeah. canceling. So I should wear them on airplanes because that's what they're for. And it's like, no, because you'll actually feel really miserable. So mm-hmm. paying attention to those things. So in your healing era, what stuff did you I don't know. I guess I, I, I always identify like child parts work with a lot of sadness, like, Oh, poor Shailene. That's not the case for everyone, but I'm curious about what was the relationship that you were trying to nurture with your, your younger self who was doing all of that masking. For me, the inner child work was letting her play of, I think there was so much masking of having to be the perfectionism and like the academic drive that not that I didn't play as a kid, but like not having to hide it or suppress it or make the place smaller. So getting back into the art and making that a part of my identity, leaning back into the childish games and being able to have my squishmallows like all over my apartment and, and letting that part of myself not be silenced in any mm-hmm. way, or have a smaller voice. And like, that's where like having my purple hair came from of like, I, I think there's some safety in hiding about making oneself smaller to not be detected mm-hmm. or to um, like with, with something we had said earlier, of there's a, well, if I'm told this is the way to do it, it's easy. Just do it. And it's not easy for me. There must be something wrong with me. I'm having to work hard. I don't want anybody to notice that I'm struggling with this. So if I stay quiet and I just figure it out by myself, nobody will know I'm struggling until I get it done. Mm-hmm. And so part of the unmasking and the inner child healing is, being a little bit more open about this is hard for me. Who's going to help me? Mm-hmm. Like, okay. Who's going to do this alongside? I need a body double. And so I don't have to figure it out by myself because it doesn't intuitively come to me in that same way. Or my method's going to be a totally different winding road method to get there. And um, giving myself a lot of that permission to be playful with it. Because I imagine what come like that, you kind of had an example of going down that hole in the sense of, I can't do it this way. Something must be wrong with me. And then just kind of like 
shutting up and figuring it out or, and I do these episodes, I'm always thinking about like, what will the listeners think? And I think like, what, what is somebody who has no knowledge in this topic area whatsoever? What would they think? And, and especially if they are kind of like, I don't know, suspect of it for whatever reason, like they're like, oh, it's, this is, is this really a problem or, or whatever? I always kind of try to think from that perspective because I want to like prove them wrong or things of that. But I think like some of those comments could be things like, um, well, we all have to figure things out or big deal, or what do you mean safety? And I think it's really important to come back to like our brains and our brains function in a way to keep us safe. And safety doesn't always mean like, you know, someone's going to, it could mean like someone's going to beat you up if you're different, but it can also just mean like you're socially out. Like all it takes is one look to be like, okay, yeah, yeah you do it your way. And it's like the signals there, you know, you're out. And so your brain, what, even though I think like a lot of us would like to really embody this energy of like, whatever, I don't give an F. It doesn't matter if people don't like me. Our brains are still wired to like connect with other people. Yeah. And yeah. so whether we like it or not, our brain is doing the scanning work behind, are you fitting in right now? Yeah. And so there's a lot of effort that goes into doing that. And part of that like really does come from the place of safety. I think that when people hear the word safety, they think like physical violence and and then it's like, oh, well, that's really not it. But it's like, no, it's like the day-to-day nervous system scanning and how exhausting that would be. And it also makes me think about how many teachers need to know more about Mm -hmm. this because I think of so many you know, school experiences probably for me that it was probably getting really reinforced. Like, oh, your book bag broke. Good for you. Taking all those books. Glad you're so strong. And I'm like dying as a nine-year-old lugging this like hundred pound bag. (laughs) Well, and that's where like a lot of the times we're misdiagnosed as having anxiety or depression first, because those are the first external signs, right? We're having this whole internal dialogue of being critical or trying to find these systems and creating the new wheel. And so then it can become an anxiety or an anxious or the perfectionism starts coming out, mm-hmm. which can then spiral into the negative self-talk. And then we're first noticed at I, the pattern I see is girls are first noticed at 11, 12, 13, 14, because now they're having panic attacks and now they're having depression spells. And those are direct results of having all this internalized um, distress mm-hmm. and not knowing what it's called. And it's so easy to see a girl and think mood disorder, we'll go bipolar, we'll go major depression, and that's the direction we'll go. And I think there's a huge component too with self-injury being associated with um, neurodivergence as well, because mm-hmm. it is another coping me- mechanism. And it all is the thing that is the big red flashing red light that suddenly gets somebody support and help. But what are all the things that happen leading up to that? That's not the first thing. Yeah. That's the last resort. Mm-hmm. And so all of the ways we can have these internal processes thinking we're the only one like this, and it's not until there are some of these behavioral disruptions and we don't automatically think neurodivergence because we think ADHD behavioral is being loud, is blurting out, is being impulsive, mm-hmm. not anxiety, not mm-hmm. depression. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a new connection that we're talking about more. Can you talk a little bit about, so we've talked a good amount about ADHD. Can you talk a little bit more about autism and what that looks like in the present day? And when I say present day, it's the same kind of topic. You know, there are two sides to everything. The DSM has a function and yeah, we're glad it's there in some way, shape or form. However, the other side of that again, is like this getting locked into a box and then really having 
potentially harmful and invalidating is someone could go through years of therapy for the wrong problem because of things getting traced back to the DSM. And so it's important that providers are always looking and for clients who are listening to this, if you're working with a provider, who's like not hearing your side of it, that's not a good place to be. It's going to really limit your ability to heal in general with whatever it is that you're dealing with. But so autism, the diagnosis changed because it used to be what changed. There used to be Asperger's Asperger's isn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think like historically people are thinking of autism in terms of degrees of functioning. There's this high or there's very low functioning and you're nonverbal. And now it's like you're seeing more people who are like, no, actually I have autism and this is, mm-hmm. this is who I am. This is what I look like. So tell us a little bit about like how we got here and what it looks yeah. like today and yeah. why that matters. <laughs> um, I mean, the history is like super dark with autism of going back to like Nazi experimentations on yeah. kids um, into being called it being called like childhood schizophrenia into mm-hmm. it being um different cognitive functions into then you have autism spectrum disorder and Asperger's, which is like a separation. It's a hierarchy that separates. And Mm -hmm. so where we are now is it's, it's a spectrum. So autism spectrum disorder, Mm -hmm. and we're talking about support needs. And so thinking more of like a pie chart, as opposed to a linear spectrum, it's more of every day, my support needs will fluctuate. There may be, I may overall have lower support needs to function in my day-to-day life. And someone else may have a higher degree of support needs for daily function, but my support needs also fluctuate. There might be days my executive function is super low or my sensory is really like impacting. So there can be days that people may not be speaking or may need um, more accommodations. And so part of the new language is giving allowance for the fluctuation. Um, very similar to chronic illness, that there are some days you have enough spoons or you have enough energy and there's some days you don't. And so it leaves space for that sort of variability. Mm-hmm. And adjust as needed, mm-hmm. basically. Exactly, exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. What can, I'm sure there are parents listening to this. I'm sure there are teachers listening to this. I'm sure there are therapists listening to it. What are some things that you think, I guess, like, it's hard to capture, you know, this is a a big, it needs a lot more attention than we're going to be able to give it in the next couple of minutes. But if you, knowing that you're speaking to that audience, what are some things that you want people to pay attention to who are in the role of parenting, guiding, or mentoring somebody young that might not be fitting the norm? What are some things that you want them to be like mindful of, or some tips or things to look out for that you feel like are really important? I think the easiest to start seeing that is very important are sensory needs, sensory sensitivity, sensory overload, sensory seeking, um, because those are ways that the body is trying to regulate. And so if you're an adult or if you have a kid, noticing that the meltdowns aren't behavioral things, they are Mm. the body trying to regulate. And so if we can identify what the trigger is or what the sensory need is, we can help get back to a baseline more fluidly as opposed to being like critical or dismissive. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that goes back to even like all therapy stuff, right? We're trying to learn how to regulate our nervous system and when our nervous system is triggered and what helps our nervous system get back to baseline. And so with autism, the, um, the, the amount of connectors in the brain that pick up on sensory stimuli is so heightened that some people can hear a conversation down the hall. And so there may be things that 
um, the general public isn't aware is happening, but the autistic person is taking that information in and that, that threshold is met faster. And mm -hmm. so being able to identify that within yourself, within your, the person you're connected to, I think is a really, really big starting point. And, um, that's the first one that really comes to my brain. What about um, diagnosis? Because I think right now I feel like it still feels a little archaic and I don't know if it should be this way, if it's helpful that it's this way, but like, for example, where we live, there's going to be an autism um, treatment center opening up for kids. And, um, that's great, but it already, it hasn't opened yet. And it's got like years and years of a wait list already. And so when it comes to diagnosis, like what's the process involved in diagnosis? I mean, yeah, I think like you should see somebody who knows what they're talking about, but what if you can't, I think there are a lot of parents who are like, I can't get a diagnosis. And they're just kind of like stuck, even though they really believe that their kid is struggling with autism. What do they like? What do they do? So there's a two, the two part answer is one with the diagnosis route. There's a lot of gatekeeping when it comes mm -hmm. to diagnosis. Yes. Um, there's a lot of inaccessibility when it comes mm -hmm. to diagnosis. So for kids, an official neuropsych evaluation um, can be four to $8,000, depending on where you live. And while kids, it, it's often covered, um, but there's a lot of hoops to even get there. And like you said, years of waiting, um, it's often not covered for adults. Mm. And so if you're wanting an official neuropsych of an adult, you might be paying out of pocket, which now creates this inaccessibility piece. Um, the hard part is, is it's a neurodevelopmental disorder. So we do want to check a lot of different things. And there's a lot of things that overlap with trauma, with ADHD, with processing. Mm -hmm. We want to check that out. But depending what I've asking, what I ask people, the first question in order to create more accessibility is what is the goal of having the diagnosis? Mm -hmm. What are you needing from having it? Because I do believe that self-assessment is valid. If somebody walked into my office and said, I diagnosed myself with anxiety. I wouldn't bat an eye. We'd take mm -hmm. that, right? So the, especially because a big characteristic of autism is um, the gathering of knowledge. And if I'm studying something, I'm going to know it to such a depth that I might know it more than- More than a, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know? And so I really trust a lot of people who have gone down that rabbit hole of having already been very thorough about it. Um, and so the question is, what do you need with the diagnosis? Are you, do you need it to self-confirm? Do you need accommodations at school? Do you need mm -hmm. medical intervention? Do you need um, fine disability support? Funding, yeah. So depending mm -hmm. on what the need is, changes what diagnostics we can kind of find for somebody. Mm -hmm. So I just recently started doing um, ADHD and autism assessments um, using some of the um, the online self-assessments and being able to incorporate those, some other clinical assessments that I can do at a master's level in order to kind of bridge that gap for people who need more than a self-assessment, but can't afford a neuropsych. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a differential diagnosis in between to have a professional say, based on everything you've showed me, I agree with you. And based on what you're looking for, your school might take my, may take my diagnosis. A doctor will make, likely take my diagnosis, but, but the state might not, but the state might not. And so being able to bridge some of those gaps and find what resources are available, there isn't a lot of resources. And that's, I think, where some of the conversation gets really confusing because I've heard a lot of people be like, well, if we're overdiagnosing, you're going to take away the resources from somebody who might need it more. What resources? Yeah. What, like what resources can an adult get? Mm -hmm. 
it's mostly just accommodations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, and I, I hope this is helpful for people to hear just one of those things. Like if you're not a therapist, you may not know that there, there is a reason, quote unquote, we got this way. And I, I, um, shudder to think of little therapist Shailene. I remember, I'll never forget this conversation and bless the person that had me as their therapist. I was like a new therapist community agency. You know, I want to do everything completely right and by the book. And I did that. And it just was probably a terribly invalidating experience for one of my clients who I remember was like very convinced that she had an eating disorder. And she, even how I say it's like, she had an eating disorder. She told me she had an eating disorder. But I was like, but you don't meet the criteria for this. And so we should really focus on this. And it's like, why do, if you're a client and you're like, yeah, why the hell did my therapist say something like that's incredibly invalidating? It doesn't excuse it. But I do know that like we got here from that reason. Therapists are, we're in this weird position of like, we're supposed to interpret symptoms and make diagnosis. And we should, we should be able to do those things. Like we, we have master's degrees. We studied all these things. However, there are certain tests that we're not allowed to give according to our license. So people don't always know that I might be able to administer something to determine if you have generalized anxiety disorder, but I can't give you a measure to determine if you have autism because that is like specially made for a psychologist and that's a different level. And so it's not to say it's like good or bad, but I do think it's helpful for people to understand why you might be going to a therapist and you're not necessarily getting, or, or maybe why you're like, okay, Jamie's my therapist. And she, she agrees. She gave me the diagnosis, but the state isn't, you know, giving me social or disability for it. And what the hell's up with that? And it's a systemic problem that our, you know, our medical system, our mental health system has a lot of catching up to do in that regard. But I think this is, go ahead. What I would tell people is if you think that you do, or you're not sure, and your therapist can or can't diagnose, or there's Mm -hmm. a waiting list of bringing it up and say like, well, let's pretend that I am. Mm-hmm. And what supports can we put in place if we assume that I am? Right. Because whether you have it officially or not, we can still figure out accommodations. We can still find resources. We can still find a community. Mm-hmm. And those can be something that we can work from that framework. And that's not going to deter or change. It should change some of the treatment, but not so drastically that you can't keep doing the work. Right. And so it might be like, okay, therapist, humor me. Let's go along with it. Let's say that I do. And how can you support me with some of my pattern recognition, my relationship dynamics, what, how I'm processing my trauma. If we take into account that there might be this neurological piece. And we're talking about therapists. There are plenty of people who don't have access to therapists either. So this might be the teacher. It might be the parent who's hearing these things and doing this kind of research and just kind of like making the best um, opinion that they can with the tools that they have and still saying and how can I help you given the fact that this is your experience? So yeah, looking this is at what awesome. the difficulties are and naming those. Mm-hmm. Naming, oh, it sounds like you struggle in some of these conversations. How can we support you with having more ease with conversations if that's mm-hmm. a goal you have? Mm-hmm. And naming the symptoms so that a kid or a teen isn't feeling like there's something wrong with me, but like, oh, this is just a factor of interacting in life. Is this something you want to work on or not? Mm-hmm. And not forcing any idea of... Um, conformity. Yeah. Like you have to look in my eyes or you're lying to me or yeah, something. This is how you have to like, have a conversation. These are the pleasantries you must say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is so weird to think of anyway, but okay. This is super helpful. Um, let people know where they can find you to learn more about you, your services and things that you offer. Yes. 
Um, so our website is equilibriumcs.com. We are serving California in person and virtually. Um, my social media handle is neurodivergent therapist on all platforms. Um, I also have a book that came out last year. It is Whoop. Mindful 14 Anxiety. And so because I'm neurodivergent and so are all my clients, all the activities in here are super appropriate and fitting for the ADHD autistic anxiety teen. Um, yeah. And that's on my website, Amazon Target, Barnes and Noble, all the places. <laughs> awesome. We'll definitely check out Jamie's stuff. Thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us today. This was super helpful for anybody listening. If you um, know someone that this episode might be helpful for, please send it to them. Continue to follow, review, share. All those things are so helpful. Take good care, everyone. We'll see you next time. All right. That's today's episode, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Tea Talk. I hope that your cup of tea is full today and that you were able to pull something out of this for yourself. If you know someone that needs to hear this episode, please send it their way. And let me know what you're thinking by sending me a message on Instagram. I love hearing from you all. And make sure to follow the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And if you are loving what you're hearing, please leave me a review and a rating. It would mean so much. All right, friends, take good care and I will see you next time.